When I was a curate in Derby many years ago, a parish near ours called St. Thomas's in Pear Tree was trying to get permission to alter its building significantly. The building was in poor repair. A scheme had been put together, grant funders were in place, and the whole idea was that a church was going to be significantly redeveloped to enable the church's witness through significant social action into an area of increasing diversity and deprivation. Who, you might think, could possibly be against this? Well, it turned out that English heritage and especially the Victorian society could be. Their determined opposition to the plans defeated the church and the diocese over and over again. Apparently, it was one of the four most important churches that this particular architect had built outside London. Our furious bishop told me afterwards that the architect only built four churches outside London, so of course it was one of the most important. But there you go. The building was already in poor repair. The constant delays and planning defeats meant that the funding was eventually lost. The impetus behind the reordering project, the mission it was intended to enable died. And then the building started to become unusable, unusable and unsafe, and it closed in 2011. Apparently, to English heritage and Victorian society, it was better to risk the church falling down than sanction its reordering. Crazy, but there you go. Why do I mention that? Because the coming of the kingdom is always opposed, sometimes directly, often subtly, but it is always opposed in one way or another. As we can see in our reading from Mark 1, it was the same for Jesus and his ministry. So my first point, Jesus faces resistance from evil. Resistance from evil. Matthew 4.12 makes it clear that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum following the arrest of John the Baptist. He seemed to see that as a signal to begin his wider ministry. Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and also near both the Way of the Sea, that's the east-west trading route that runs along the north of the Sea of Galilee, and the north-south route down the Jordan Valley was a great base from which to move in all directions. Mark 1.21 suggests that this move has just taken place. And when the Sabbath comes, Jesus goes into the synagogue and is given permission to teach. The people are bowled over. Jesus' teaching has authority. The word translated amazed in verse 22 means something like to strike with shock. There's undoubtedly the presence of the Holy Spirit on him. Luke 4.14 tells us that after his temptations in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So the congregation undoubtedly sense the power of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. But notice the contrast Mark makes in verse 22. It's not just the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's also because Jesus teaches in a different way. 
He doesn't teach, I think, like the teachers of the law did, constantly quoting, repeating, and analyzing the opinions and the interpretations of others. He speaks on his own behalf as one who has authority, the authority to say what the scriptures mean without deferring to others. Translating literally, and they were astounded at his teaching, for he was teaching them as having authority and not as the scribes. The Greek word for authority is exousia. Ex meaning out of, and ousia means substance, property, deriving from a word meaning being. In other words, Jesus speaks as one who has authority out of his being, out of himself. It's all going incredibly well. The, the congregation is struck with shock at the presence of the Holy Spirit and the way that Jesus is teaching. But as the kingdom is breaking in, so Jesus faces resistance from evil. An eruption happens in the middle of the sermon. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's one of their own, a man in their synagogue. He's not a visitor. He's well known to them all, someone whom they've lived with and known for years. And notice that he defines Jesus as the outsider. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And he, the one shouting the place down, is part of the home team. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth, outsider? Again, playing on their sense of being struck with shock at both the power of the Spirit and the authority of his teaching, the man tries to unite his community against Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Why would this unite them against Jesus? Well, because they know they're sinful, because they're sensing as though struck by shock at Jesus' teaching and anointing that someone great, that someone holy has come because they know that they don't deserve mercy. He's wanting to, them to unite against Jesus, wanting to make them afraid of Jesus, whose presence and power he wants them to perceive as a threat, as a threat rather than an invitation. This could have been effective resistance, organizing the locals against the holy outsider, but Jesus counters it straight away. Discerning what's happening, Jesus silences him. Literally, it's a single sentence, be quiet and come out of him. The impure spirit cannot resist the authority of Jesus though it makes its host pay for it being evicted, shaking him as it leaves and forcing him to scream out in pain. Jesus faces resistance from evil and overcomes it. Second, Jesus also faces resistance from fear. Resistance from fear. We're not told that the locals gathered around their friend from whom the spirit has been evicted and helped him up, but I think we must imagine that they do. A different word is used in verse 27 for their amazement. If the word in verse 22 means struck by shock, the word translated so amazed in verse 27 means to be astounded or to be terrified. 
That's its root. Verse 27 has that they are debating among themselves, literally. We need to imagine intense and wide-eyed conversation among the congregation at just what's happened. And that some of them are looking darkly at Jesus. What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. They are now awestruck, yes, but also thoroughly unnerved. They are afraid. Jesus didn't set out to provoke the man's outburst. Presumably the man had lived among them with an impure spirit for years without it breaking out like this. But having delivered the man, now everyone is looking at Jesus with alarm. Yes, great teaching. Yes, different from the scribes and Pharisees, but wow, that was scary. Wow, that was uncanny and unnerving. But wow, do we really want the Holy One of God in our midst? Jesus had dealt with resistance from evil, but dealing with it means him having to face their fear. They are awestruck and unnerved. Mark emphatically doesn't tell us that they're delighted to have Jesus around. The disciples and Jesus quickly leave the synagogue. Verse 28 literally says immediately. I wonder if Simon and Andrew, James and John are are whisking Jesus away from controversy. They take him to Simon's home. If you've had the privilege of going to Capernaum, you'll know that's about 100 to 150 yards from the synagogue. And when they get there, they find that Simon's mother-in-law has fallen ill with a fever. Again, the word immediately is used. We have a sense of a fast-moving situation. Luke, who was a doctor, gives us more details. According to Luke 4.38, she was suffering from a high fever. Seems one that's overtaken her quickly, presumably while the synagogue service was still happening. She's literally been laid aside isolated so that her sudden illness is less likely to affect others. Here again, Jesus is facing opposition from Capernaum's fear. I'm sure we all remember how we all felt at the beginning of the pandemic, facing an illness we did not fully understand. But in that period, there wasn't much understanding at all of how viruses and diseases spread. So the sudden appearance of a serious fever would cause real fear in a small, tight-knit community. Do you remember the contract tracing that we all faced at the beginning of the pandemic? Well, I think a version of that is going on in Capernaum at that moment, with people trying to work out just to who's been close to Simon's mother-in-law over recent hours and days. Rumor is scurrying around the town right now in all directions. Jesus is bringing the kingdom in power. What's just happened in the synagogue has left the locals awestruck and unnerved, but the arrival of sudden serious illness has just deepened significantly the fear in Capernaum. The word contagion means with touch. There was such a fear of illness that sufferers were isolated at least as much as possible. But Jesus confronts their fear and going to her, takes her hand and raises her to her feet. The contagion cannot spread to Jesus. Healing flows into her from Jesus' touch. 
the high fever leaves her as completely as the impure spirit left the man. And she at once takes upon herself the duties of a host. Jesus faces down their fear. He faces resistance from evil. He faces down their fear. And third, I think Jesus faces distraction. Rumor has gone into overdrive. Accounts of deliverance, sudden high fever and healing are all rattling around Capernaum in all directions. If Jesus left the synagogue with people awestruck and unnerved, I think the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, a rapid, instant, complete recovery from sudden serious illness, well, that is a game changer. Now, as soon as the Sabbath ends, the whole town gathered at the door, according to verse 33. Suddenly, everyone wants Jesus. And people bring everyone who needs healing or deliverance to him. And we're told that Jesus both healed and delivered many. Some see an apparent tension in the text between all who were ill and demon-possessed in verse 32, but verse 34 reporting only that Jesus healed and delivered many. But many, of course, can be much greater than all. One is about quantity, the other is about completeness. For example, if all were three people, that would surely be a lot less than many. We really shouldn't conclude that just because Jesus heals and delivers many in verse 34, that means that it wasn't everyone for whom he prayed. So I think all the many who came seeking healing and deliverance found it at the hands of Jesus. And then Jesus, in bringing the kingdom, faces distraction. The enthusiasm in Capernaum is off the scale. Everyone wants more of the same. Capernaum has gone from not being at all sure about Jesus to wanting him never to leave ever again. So Simon and his companions come seeking Jesus, expecting that Jesus will simply give them more of the same. It's a third kind of opposition to distract Jesus with masses and masses of stuff from his real purpose. So just after her passage, Jesus slips out long before dawn to pray on his own. And that gives him the clarity to see beyond the distraction, to clarity to see beyond the urgent to the essential. Verse 38, he says, let us go somewhere else so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. He's saying, I haven't just been sent to Capernaum, he's saying to them. So yes, what happened yesterday was amazing. But I don't belong only to Capernaum. I have to respond to God's calling today. I have to take the message of God's kingdom to every village and town that will hear it. I think that's astonishing, to have such a clear sense of call that he has the courage and the faith to walk away from such a spectacular breakthrough. Walk away knowing that God will simply do the same wherever he goes. To know that God hasn't sent him simply to do this once, but to do this wherever people will listen and respond. Jesus faces distraction and is able to see beyond and through it to discern God's call on him. The coming of God's kingdom is always opposed. In our passage, we see that opposition as Jesus faces resistance from evil, as Jesus faces down their fear, and as Jesus faces distraction as he seeks to bring the kingdom beyond Capernaum. 
what does all this mean for us today? It challenges us first to remember who Jesus is, to remember who Jesus is. Hebrews 13, 8 puts it like this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. That Jesus has not and will not change. What makes Capernaum awestruck is that his deeds show that the kingdom he is proclaiming has come. He demonstrated the kingdom's victory over evil, over sickness and over fear. The whole town gathered at the door because Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom has come. If Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, that means that he is still the anointed one. He is still a healer, still a deliverer, and still a worker of miracles today. Still someone today who will show in our midst that the kingdom has come. Not yet in its fullness, true but that it has undoubtedly come in power. Even here and now, even among and through people like us, the kingdom comes. Someone testified at 6.30 last week to a miracle that happened recently on the high street. To that person, God's kingdom has come to someone else through them. If we think he cannot do this, if you think that he will not do this, in what way and by what right have we decided that Jesus Christ is not the same yesterday and today and forevermore? Challenge us second to ask, do we get in our own way? Do we get in our own way? We're either fighting or feeding the opposition we face. It might be that we often give way to fear and that silences or freezes us when it's time to step out for God. It might be that we're quick to see all the reasons why something cannot work before we've even tried. And sometimes because we fear stepping out, because we fear failing. That's maybe one reason why the toilets took more than 40 years to arrive because we looked for a perfect solution rather than an achievable one. Again, I've been told recently that we've been thinking about doing something like open house for more than 30 years. But maybe it's only been open for less than two weeks because sometimes we're good at finding reasons to say no. Sometimes we're good at finding reasons not to act. It might be that sometimes we'll allow a single failure we tried that and it didn't work. We'll allow a single failure to stand for all times and all places. Might be that we're so swamped with stuff sometimes that we're distracted and unable to tell the significant from the urgent. I know that that's often the case for me. Might be that sometimes we mutter and grumble against things and against people, subtly maybe and in quiet places but in ways which, according to Ephesians 4.27, might give the devil a foothold. Might be that we find it hard to give up control. Might be even that we don't want sometimes others to succeed. Might be that we don't want to see God's presence moving out in power in our midst because that's more of God, maybe more of a sovereign and present God than we really want to welcome. 
Are there ways in which we sometimes get in our own way? How is the kingdom being resisted at the moment, both within us, around us, and amongst us? To what extent are we fighting or feeding the opposition? And it challenges us, third, to renew our hope. To renew our hope. This is a difficult time. This is a challenging time whenever we watch the news. It's a time when despair sometimes looks like a rational response. I remember when the war was declared in February, talking to my mum, and the first thing that struck her was, all my grandchildren are conscriptable. This is a difficult time. But we need to renew our hope because the coming of the kingdom is always opposed. Sometimes directly, often subtly, the coming of the kingdom is always opposed. And yet, Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that our struggle often isn't with the people standing against us, like English Heritage or the Victorian Society, whether directly or subtly, it's against the spiritual forces that are raged against us. And Ephesians 6 reminds us that we have got the whole armor of God and that we can and will stand in the Lord and in his mighty power. So as bleak as sometimes we feel, we are not defenseless. As Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not overcome the rock of the church. As, people, as Paul promised in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, in the end, every knee... Every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will confess him as Lord. And in Romans 8, 38 and 39, we're promised that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are not defenseless. We stand in the Lord and in his mighty power and the end is sure, even though we're often perhaps always, opposed. So it's time to renew our hope, time to remember that our Lord is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he will have the last word. Remember that, yes, we might lose an occasional battle, but we are not defenseless. We can stand our ground in the Lord's strength and in his mighty power, and we will not lose the war. St. Thomas's pear tree reopened six years after it closed. Essential repairs have been funded through grants. A new church plant meets there now, pursuing something close to the original vision. Yes, several battles were lost. Yes, the, re the resistance was ridiculous and self-defeating. But hope has arisen again. So choose to renew your hope in him. Your hope that God is still at work. Your hope that God's purpose has not changed. Your hope that God still intends that the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. Your hope that God still intends for us to be never separated from his love. Your hope that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Where does your hope need to be renewed by the Spirit today? Amen. Amen.